Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. It is Wednesday, August 18th. What a week. So I'm going to give you a quote. I'm going to give you a quote that came from President Joe Biden this week in response to how Facebook was dealing with misinformation and specifically disinformation and how quickly and responsive they were to the rapid spread of disinformation, specifically regarding vaccines. Joe Biden said, quote, anyone listening to it, meaning the misinformation or the information on Facebook, is getting hurt by it. It's killing people. It's bad information. My hope is that Facebook, instead of taking it personally, that somehow I'm saying Facebook is killing people, that they would do something about the misinformation, the outrageous misinformation about the vaccine. And that is what I meant. There has been a tug of war between Facebook and the Biden administration this week about this misinformation. Let's play a clip of uh, an interview with Gail King from CBS News and Mark Zuckerberg. Let's roll that clip. I get that you all have taken down 18 million pieces of misinformation, but one of the things that the White House has, has asked for repeatedly and still hasn't gotten a number is how much misinformation have people viewed and shared? Do you have that number? Well, if we see harmful misinformation on the platform, then we take it down. It's against our policies. So the 18 million number that I shared is the number of, of pieces of content that um, that we've seen on the platform that that we take down. Now, do we catch everything? Of course, there are mistakes that we make or areas where we need to improve, but that's the that's the best number that we have in terms of what we've seen and what our systems have been able to detect. But I do think those are two separate issues. You've taken down 18 million pieces of misinformation, but how many people have viewed the misinformation? Is it more than 18 million? Is it less than 18 million? That's the number I think people are talking about. You know, the White House said at one point, Facebook is killing people. That was very bold and very blunt and very provocative. And I think the president walked that back. But the point he was making, I believe, is that people look at it and they act upon it or they don't act upon it. And Facebook is being blamed for that. That's why I'm trying to nail down what is the number of misinformation that people have viewed. Maybe you don't know it. Maybe you all don't know that number. So- so much is going on here. Um, kudos to Gail King for at least trying to clarify how much misinformation was being spread. It's one thing to take down 19 million posts. You know how many posts go up a day on Facebook in the United States, not to mention globally. But for him saying that, oh, we've taken down 19 million posts. At what stage did they take it down? How much harm had already been done? I am so glad that Gail King asked that specific question. Well, how many views do they get? Now, Facebook, just to remind you all, has already had issues on how many views are accurate. You know, a few years ago, I remember we would post stuff at the conventions, other places on the Bernie Sanders campaign, and we would get tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of views with the, the surrogate circuit. I was the DNC and we, I mean, there's nothing to compare to what we get now on Facebook. And later on, it came out that they were not posting the accurate numbers, that the views that were being perceived online 
we're not necessarily reflective of the actual views, not to mention how many people stay on that link for longer than five seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds. And at what point does the misinformation spread? So at what point of watching, do people share it more? Does it even matter if they share it? Is it the headline? All of these questions are super important. But the bottom line here is Facebook knows. It's not like they're clueless. He makes it sound like, but the machines can't handle things. Of course they can, especially post-2016 and Cambridge Analytica. Mark Zuckerberg should be extremely thoughtful about how he presents this war against misinformation, taking down 19 million posts. What does that even mean? How many views? Is this after hundreds of millions of views? Is this after hundreds of millions of, of shares? Billions? We have no sense. How many minutes? How many hours have people watched this? Has it influenced certain areas where, I don't know, COVID rates have gone up because people aren't getting their vaccines? It'd be very interesting for a CEO who's already under attack for misinformation from 2016 to come forward and be upfront about these things. You know, the way he was when he answered the question of, this is amazing. I just, I, I can't, let me get the quote. This is just too, too good because on one hand, he says, oh, well, it's really hard for us to know how much misinformation was posted. Uh, we know how many posts we took down. We don't know how many people had seen it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been really complicated for us. This has been a really difficult thing for us to measure. But, but later on, he says, as of mid-July, more than 2 billion people viewed authoritative, authoritative information about COVID-19 on Facebook, including 3.3 million Americans who used the vaccine finder tool to make an appointment to get the vaccine. When it makes them look good, they have the details. When they're caught, goodness gracious, goodness gracious, we don't know. We're just a little company. There's just so many posts, we can't handle it. It's not like we take up, you know, a, a major uh, campus in Northern California and have offices in every single country that uses our, oh, it's, uh, okay, Mark Zuckerberg. It's up, the shtick is up. There are literally people dying because of the misinformation that's being spread, not just on Facebook, but Facebook is a major perpetrator of this. The fact that you boost and you allow the algorithm to grow off of this misinformation, that the top 10 media uh, posts in the last month, how much of that was coming from right-wing media who's challenging the vaccine? And let me just guess, those hosts probably already have their vaccine. You are literally an accomplice to the monetization of misinformation about the vaccine. The people who are spreading the misinformation are doing so because they know that the business model supports it. I'm gonna guess that the same people who are spreading this misinformation and are only doing it because the algorithms of Facebook benefit their pocketbooks in doing so, I'm gonna guess that those same hosts have their vaccines. So really it does come down to you, Facebook and Google and Twitter. It does come down to you. You are not a response to the politics. You are actually engineering the politics. You know that conspiracies sell. And right now, 
It's a prime opportunity to spread conspiracies, but at what cost? You might be making record money right now. But in 10 years, in 15 years, you know this ain't going to work out. You know very well that the algorithm in which you design benefits, supports conspiracy theories, tapping into people's weaknesses and their anger. Remember when, on the topic of Afghanistan, let's talk about just a few years ago, when we saw that there was a spread of, of radicalization online when it came to ISIS, when ISIS started to grow. You know, the tech companies had no problem cracking down then. But now when the human right race is being challenged, whether it comes to climate change, science denial there, spreading online, or vaccine denial or COVID denial, that is radicalization as well on the right. It's funny. It's really funny how when it comes to radicalization on the right, in some countries, you have no problem doing the responsible thing. But when it comes to radicalization on the right in capitalist countries parading as democracies, you don't take it on. At what point? At what point are you actually going to do something? So kudos to Joe Biden. I wish he hadn't walked it back. I wish he had leaned in a little bit more. Kudos to him for at least acknowledging or using his honest, you know, his, his the lack of a filter when it comes to honesty to say what so many know. The problem is he said it and he had to pull back. And that, I think, is ultimately the power that Facebook and these tech companies have over even the Democratic establishment. But it's got to stop. It's got to stop. This is how fascism spreads. Go back and look at the playbook. Misinformation, misinformation, conspiracy theories, tapping into economic anxiety, taking on institutions which surely are not succeeding right now in terms of, of doing uh, their role, playing into people's doubts, playing into people's sexism and misogyny and racism and blaming the other. This is the tool book. It's just formed in a different way with the internet. It's just facilitated faster. Mark Zuckerberg, you are not a small man. You are not a, just a little lowly entrepreneur. You are able to communicate to the hearts and minds and thoughts and, and frustrations and doubts and insecurities of almost every single person on this planet. Do the responsible thing. Don't make this about quarterly results and returns making sure your investors get whatever they invested in more. Do this about, you want, you know, <laughs> let's tap into your ego a little bit. Save your complex. If you, save your complex. If you want to actually make a name for yourself and be in the history books for something other than spreading misinformation and contributing to the pandemic, then maybe, maybe you do the right thing. You might actually be able, able to help fight climate change. If that algorithm, which is human designed, 
We're to focus on spreading facts and using the psychology of spreading facts and how you message that, creating the algorithm from a place of good rather than a place of immediate profit. Because we know when we focus on immediate profit, we're focusing on hate and misinformation and doubt and blame and all the negative stuff. But if you, Mark Zuckerberg, want to come out as a savior, because you're not looking good right now, you're looking like a Charles Lindbergh right now. You might've been known for something admirable at one point, but at the end of the day, the politics are what took him down. And I think, you know, you have to think about that. So I'm actually just throwing this out to Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) I'm sure he'll see it. Do what's right. All right, we have a wonderful show today. Uh, Speaking of misinformation, it's so funny. We book these shows and we have no idea what's about to go down. Uh, In the first hour, we have Lee McIntyre on, who's a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History, History of Science at Boston University, who wrote a book called How to Talk to a Science Denier. And wouldn't it be interesting, and I'll ask him, how you incorporate that into the design of an algorithm? On one hand, you have how to convince people to challenge, uh, to believe in conspiracies, how to tap into conspiracies and grow them. And on the other hand, you have the psychology of how to talk to a science denier and bring them over to, to the logical and, and fact-based side. But first we have uh, Ricardo Valadez, who is the private equity, equity campaign manager at Americans for Financial Reform. He's gonna talk about how Private equity is taking advantage of this economic crisis and COVID and the infrastructure bill and everything right now and just seeping their 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 tentacles into Washington right now to make sure that they get a piece of the pie. And then at the very end of the show, so excited to have the one and only Harvey K. He was on last week. We didn't have enough time. We have plenty of time in the second hour with Harvey K to talk about what Joe Biden's role has been, uh, his response to Afghanistan, uh, how his presidency is dealing with bigger issues like the infrastructure, other issues, I should say, uh, like the infrastructure bill, big issues like the infrastructure bill, and of course, uh, following through on his promises. And then we might even throw a little bit about tech and populism, which is how we started off the show. All right, we will be right back after this brief little break to talk with the one, the only, Ricardo Valadez. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, very excited to have Ricardo Valadez on. He is the private equity campaign manager at Americans for Financial Reform, which is a nonpartisan and nonprofit coalition of more than 200 civil rights, consumer, labor, business, investor, faith-based, and civic and community groups, uh, which formed in the wake of the 2008 economic crisis. I'm old enough to remember that and live it and experience it. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for joining the show, Ricardo. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm I'm fascinated by the work you're doing right now um, as it relates to the economic crisis that we're in now uh, involving private equity. So just before we get to like the present state of where we are, um, how much did private equity play a role in like the post-2008 economic crisis. Is, is, is private equity sort of, um, I, I, I don't know, craving for economic disasters or whatever it is, the opportunities attached to them. Is this a new thing that, that came out of 2008 or has it already existed? 
Well, the industry existed before 2008, but um, they did uh, take that economic crisis as a real growth opportunity. And, you know, we can we have uh, quotes from, from the time, uh, you know, uh, from investor calls of private equity executives um, really, you know, getting excited and salivating at the, the you know, how the, the devastation in the housing market, for example, um, that uh, that occurred in after the 2008 crisis, um, and they they really did take that uh, opportunity to um, to to pounce on low prices. You know, if if you want to take the housing market for example, um, they took they bought up tons of real estate um, in uh, and you know consolidated that to become uh, the largest. Uh, uh, a landlord in the country at one time, uh, in the the form of uh, invitation homes, uh, which now is still a, a major uh, renter in the housing market, um, and they um, they're you know poised to jump on the current uh, crisis in the same way. Um, in the same way that they're expecting more foreclosures or more renters to leave. I mean, how does this kind of play out in this version of, of the housing crisis that we're, I guess we're facing if we just don't have an accurate number. Yeah. The, so the, the private equity industry has been a major driver in the corporatization of, of housing, um, you know, whether it's in manufactured housing um, or apartments or single family homes. Um, they are, they're continuing to to invest heavily um, in the housing market, often crowding out individual buyers and and small, uh, you know, uh, mom and pop uh, rental or uh, uh, landlords. So, OK, so let's let's uh, conceptualize the crisis that we're in the midst of right now. Mm-hmm. If you live in New York, um, where I live, uh, we're facing a an eviction moratorium expiration um, very soon. and. Uh, it's been mind-boggling to me, to me because yes, rental rates have gone down, but they haven't gone down to the extent that we all thought. Um, landlords have received a little bit of, of support, but you know, my immediate thought is, well, what about the small landlord? I live in Queens. There's a lot of small landlords there. Not you know, not as many as there used to be, but uh, for the most part, there are plenty of duplexes and you know, small apartment buildings that are owned by grandmas who invested there you know 50 years ago. Um, are they at risk of, of, of losing their property being bought up by these bigger companies? Yeah, that, that is a real concern. Um, you know, one of the trends that we see in the in the housing industry when it comes to private equity is their ability to come in and make cash offers and buy properties, um, often well over asking price, uh, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars at over asking price. Um, and, you know, that puts in, in jeopardy a lot of... Um, you know, folks who who may not have access to that sort of capital, right? Another trend we've been seeing is um, uh, that you know, yes, there is a uh, the uh, eviction moratorium is coming to an end, and we do expect, uh, unfortunately, a wave of, of evictions. But another um, factor in that is that many uh, corporate landlords not only um, have been you know uh, poised for evictions, but they've also been uh, uh, not, uh, extending leases. Uh, and so, you know, you'll, you will have a, a lot of folks who are evicted, but also folks who aren't able to extend leases. And what that allows them to do is, uh, really, uh, uh, drive, uh, rental rates higher with new tenants. 
and they've been doing this for years. It's not like this is a new concept. They they'll find little ways within the loopholes to, um, you know, not to either just make sure that the apartments are like falling apart and people don't want to renew their leases or, or whatever it is, um, so that they can remodel it and double the price. Um, yeah. And what we've seen, you know, across it's, this is not just an issue in housing. What we've seen across, uh, the private equity industry is that they're often, um, involved in drivers of some of the worst practices, well, some of the worst, uh, and most egregious business practices that we see in the country, whether that's driving up prices in healthcare, uh, for consumers, um, uh, like you mentioned, you know, uh, driving up rental rates, increasing fees and, you know, squeezing renters, um, or, you know, buying up, uh, retail, um, and squeezing workers, um, and, you know, driving bankruptcies, uh, across the economy, uh, private equity is responsible for some of the uh, worst practices when it comes to workers and consumers. So, so let's talk about, um, healthcare, obviously, uh, can you explain like how does this how does this play out and and how does it kind of go head to head with this this fight for Medicare for all or the stall on on any you know real legislative uh, focus on Medicare for all? Well, uh, you know, private equity's role in in healthcare has has uh, changed over the, over the years, uh, but you know. Wherever they get involved, what we've seen is, is higher prices for consumers and often, um, you know, a lot of mess in the wake um, after they sort of walk away with profits. So, you know, a, a, a decade or so ago, they they were um, interested in buying up a lot of hospitals. Um, and so they bought a lot of hospitals, um, uh, many community hospitals. Um, and the result of, of private equity's involvement there was the closing of a lot of safety net hospitals. Um, you know, that the, 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 the private equity business model is to really buy up assets, uh, squeeze as much money as they can from them, and then, you know, offload them, uh, whatever the, whatever the result, right? So that could mean, uh, you know, workers losing their jobs, communities losing their, their hospitals, um, really the, the, the private equity industry is, isn't concerned with the, you know, with, uh, what they leave behind, um, and so in healthcare, you know, what one of the trends we're seeing now is um, they're buying, they've been uh, engaged in a lot of uh, what's called roll-ups in, 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 um, in the healthcare space. So that what that means is they buy a lot of uh, practices in, in, for example, uh, dermatology or dentistry, um, and they'll uh, roll them up into one big company. Um, and then, you know, they can uh, manipulate prices and uh, and kind of create uh, stealth monopolies in, in certain markets um, using those practices. So that's uh, something we're tracking currently. Yeah. So so it, it seems really interesting. It's like they they find whether in the real estate aspect or even retail, I guess, the same. Um, if there is a crisis, an economic crisis, uh, obviously, you know, pandemic is a, is a different type of crisis that created an economic crisis or even a climate crisis, for instance, you know, buying up distressed real estate that has, I look at Puerto Rico as a classic example, you know? Um, so it seems like there's, there's the strategy of like going, following the crisis and maybe not fighting some of the crises like climate change. Uh, but then simultaneously there's this healthcare crisis where it's very clear that we have a broken healthcare system in our country and they're capitalizing off that as well. 
Is this, is this an accurate assessment? Yeah, I think that's very accurate. I, the you know one of the one of the advantages that private equity has um, is that uh, they sit on massive amounts of of uh, cash that they're able to to d- deploy, um, and so you know they'll uh, they'll wait uh, for whether it's you know low housing stock or you know an opportunity that they see that to squeeze consumers and you know make money um, in. Healthcare or housing, um, they're they're really in every part of the economy, even in uh, places you would never imagine. Um, you know, they're huge in entertainment. Uh, they just, for folks familiar with the uh, Cirque du Soleil, uh, you know, private equity drove them into bankruptcy last year. Um, well, what do you mean by drove them into bankruptcy? That's a good question. So, private equity. Uh, one of the things that's key to private equity's business model is the use of debt to buy companies. Um, and so if you or I, you or I were to go uh, buy a house uh, or a car um, and take out a, a, a loan or a mortgage, uh, we would be responsible for paying that back. Uh, but the private equity uh, business model relies on uh, what's called a leverage buyout um, in which the debt is placed on the company that's being bought. So the private equity firm uh, itself has no liability for the money that was uh, for the debt that was put on those companies, and so we saw that practice drive a lot of uh, 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 bankruptcies in retail. Um, you know, at a time when retail was going through trans- transitions, uh, you know, to online and and you know the stores were changing. Uh, private equity, you know, bills itself as coming in and uh, providing you know, uh, uh, leadership and capital, you know, during those transitions. But what they actually do is pile on debt that uh, that makes it harder for those uh, companies uh, to transition because they actually also have to pay the debt um, that was put on them, you know, sometimes tens of billions of dollars um, in the case of, of Toys R Us and others. Um, uh, and so that practice drives bankruptcy, and they they use uh, debt not only to um, not only to buy the companies, uh, but they also can then force those companies to take on additional loans loans um, to to pay back to buy back stocks. Um, and what that does is give them you know make the private equity firms a lot richer, um, but make saddles the company. Um, with additional debt that they have to uh, service and, and pay back and make it harder for them to survive. So that's so, one way they drive companies into bankruptcy. So what's interesting about this though, I, I, I'm and forgive my uh, naivete, like the company is valuable enough for them to do all this and keep it alive to an extent. Is there some some hope that once they take control, the company rebound? And so they're making money in the crisis. They're creating a crisis um, for the company or exacerbating whatever, you know, predatory and then, and then, and then take hold of the company because they still see the value in that company, um, in the long term. Yeah. Um, so that does occur sometimes, but what private equity is really playing is a, uh, high reward, low stakes game. And because they can use, uh, debt that they're not responsible for, uh, it puts them in a position to take uh, a lot of risk. So if they, you know, they put a tiny amount, you know, two to three percent of their own money into a big deal, and you know, drive about the the deal with about sixty to seventy percent uh, debt typically. Uh, 
Um, and so if the company goes bad, they lose a small amount of money. But if it, go, if it goes well, they still make money. And the, if it goes bad, often because of their, the, the ways they loot the company while they have it, uh, they, they, can, they often still make money even if the company goes bankrupt. It's a win, 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 win. <laughs> right. Except for the workers and consumers who now are left, you know, with no jobs, um, you know, uh, uh, maybe no pensions or lower pensions, often no severance. Um, and the communities that are left without uh, beloved brands like Toys R Us and Pay Less Shoes. Um, yeah. So, so let's talk about the workers. Um, when private equity comes in and, and you know, obviously we're pivoting to retail, retail has been affected in so many ways over the last, you know, since, since online, uh, since folks are buying things online, but also in this pandemic, um, even more so as Amazon has done better than ever, uh, you know, brick and mortar stores have, have just like restaurants and every other small business. Um, so how, how have workers been affected specifically not like, I guess let's, let's separate the two. There's, there's the pandemic problems, the, the problems of, you know, companies, uh, not getting the business and also, you know, workers not being able to go in into work. Aside from that, how have workers been affected by private equity swooping in and, and taking advantage of this situation? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, um, because private equity only cares about uh, the short term, you know, and squeezing the company uh, as for you know, for a short time, uh, you know, workers pay and benefits and investment in the workforce is often, you know, one of the first places they go to to cut costs. So in retail, you know, in, in brand after brand and store after store, what we've seen is, you know, uh, benefits uh, being eroded, uh, pay being squeezed, uh, jobs being cut, stores being closed. Um, and, um, you know, private equity finding ways to to squeeze money um, for the short term, even if it makes you know the store less attractive to um, uh, to 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 work there long term, but also to to shop at. Um, so you know, we've heard you know from workers at stores when private equity comes in and buys a store that um, they may start spending less on some of the core processes that make the store look good or make the produce fresh in, in you know, in grocery stores, for example. Um, and so again, that can, you know, undermine the long-term viability of the company. Um, but, you know, the private equity company is not concerned about that because it, you know, helps their bottom line in the short term. This is extremely uh, horrifying. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, we have the Biden administration now, supposedly uh, they're going to be taking consumer affairs and, and uh, taking on Wall Street a little bit more seriously. Is this, is this happening? Is there any sign that that's actually there, especially in an economic crisis like this? I mean, you can't move slowly on things like this. Yeah, there, there are certainly opportunities, you know, for, for us to reign in the industry. There, there are, you know, regulatory uh, things that the administration can do. Um, um, and then there's also, you know, opportunities to, to pass legislation to, that would fundamentally change the business model, um, you know, and stop some of these, the worst practices, limit their ability to, to pile on debt, 
um, change bankruptcy law so that workers are, um, you know, not as vulnerable um, when bankruptcies do occur. Um, and so there, there really are uh, some opportunities now. And there's a growing uh, awareness of the industry um, and their role in the economy. Um, so, yeah, we do see some opportunities. Fascinating. Um Ricardo, I would love to have you back on and talk more to see how this evolves in the next few months. And if the Biden administration and Congress decides to take this seriously enough to do something uh, big and bold, but uh, really great conversation and, um, you know, keep up the amazing work. Thank you so much. I'd love to be back. Sounds good. Thanks, Ricardo. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science. And I emphasize science at Boston University. Uh, and he's the author of How to Talk to a Science Denier. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for joining. This is, I feel like a topic we should just be discussing every single day, hoping that maybe it just hits one more person or two more people or three more people, uh, because that's how significant this crisis of science denial is at this moment, whether it's pandemic or climate change or, you know, other things that could be coming. So, so thanks for joining us, Lee. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. So, okay. Um, I, our audience knows I've been in Greece and just a little update for the audience. There are now over 540 fires uh, since we first started talking about the fires, which is a little over two weeks ago, where there were over a hundred fires um, in Greece. And the political situation here, which I think relates to many parts of the globe, uh, is you have a center-right government that was dependent on a far-right science-denying uh, faction to go into their coalition to be able to win against what was in at least Greece, the left uh, government. And this government in particular, center-right government of Mitsotakis, ran against the last government and how they handled one wildfire. Uh, so it, it's it's fascinating because this 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 is obviously our problem in the states is that we have loose coalitions of many different political factions, but one that happens to be holding us all hostage right now, whether it's denying vaccine science or COVID science or mask science or just science. Um, and of course, climate change. I mean, these fires are not unique to, to Greece. It's happening in Northern California. And, you know, we, we, we know this is we're, we're on the science side here. Um, is this about convincing people anymore? I mean, this is I feel like these are the folks you just can't convince and they're just keeping us hostage. Does it matter anymore? I, I think it always matters uh, to talk to people. And one important thing to realize is that uh, science denial exists on a spectrum. And then, by the way, when you're talking to a science denier, don't use the word denier. I mean, I used it for the, the title of my book, but um, no one considers themselves a science denier. Some of them actually can consider themselves skeptics or, you know, more scientific than the scientists. But it does help to speak to them because you shouldn't assume going in that, you know, they're hardcore and that they can't be converted. And you know what? Even if they were, there are some anecdotal accounts of hardcore climate deniers being converted. And here's the really fascinating thing. When that happens, it always happens in the exact same way, which is that they talk to somebody that they trust. Uh, 
Um, the science denial is not just a crisis of facts, it's a crisis of trust. And so what do the facts matter? What magic words can you say to somebody to convince them? If they don't trust you, how do you build trust? Face-to-face, -face, conversation, calm, respect, patience, listening, very hard to pull off, but it can work. It doesn't work in every case, but it can work. Um, I mean, this reminds me of just old school political organizing. When you're doing door to door, you you figure out, OK, maybe there's somebody who I can move because they're part of my community. They're part of my church. And, and this is actually what the right wing has been very effective at doing is organizing with, you know, within churches. Um, but it could be your neighbor. Uh, it could be. Uh, this was this is well known to to work with the LGBTQ movement when they were fighting for marriage equality was, you know, friends and family. You'd find out that someone like a Dick Cheney could be moved because his daughter came out. Um, why don't we I mean, why hasn't this tactic been I mean, has it been utilized with climate, for instance, to, to its effect? And, and, and simultaneously, I say this. You know, it's one thing to reach out in that way, but the radicalization that's happening online just seems to be happening at a much faster pace. I mean, can you have these two things at the same time? It, it, is, it is a challenge, right? Because the friends of science have to scale up because we're, you know, we're, we're trying to catch a moving train here. Um, but the good news is that it is possible. Uh, and in fact, it, you put your finger right on it. The best possible means of convincing somebody is somebody who already trusts you. Um, somebody you know, where it's very hard with a stranger to try to build trust, but if somebody already trusts you, then, you know, you, you've got a little bit of an open door. And then, then the thing is don't exploit the closeness that you have with the person to insult them, you know, to, uh, to, to make, you know, to defy that trust. I was just hearing a story the other day about a, a young woman who was talking to her father about climate change. And he you know, was just intransigent, just, you know, whatever facts she presented. And then she finally said, Dad, why do you trust all these people that you've never met, but you don't trust your own daughter? And that did the trick. So, I mean, that was an emotional appeal. It was not a factual appeal. But notice what happened. She went with the trust issue first. And then all of a sudden, all of the factual issues uh, fell into place. If we think that the best way to confront a science denier is just to cram facts down their throat because they don't know them, that's wrong. And it, and it will not work. And in the polarized environment that now exists over you know, COVID and climate change and other things, it just won't work. What's going to work, if anything will, is um, building trust, engaging people face to face and not avoiding difficult conversations. This reminds me of. Um... Drew Weston's work, The Political Brain, uh, who, who wrote about this maybe a decade ago about how Bill Clinton, for instance, was so um, effective at communicating to voters that wouldn't necessarily, I mean, specifically it was all voter related, but at the end of the day, it's all the same mechanism as you're trying to sway people. Um, and he would appeal to their emotional emotions or, or tap into something very personal to connect with them. Um, but that's also how coalitions are built. And if you if this is this is a political crisis as much as it's a messaging crisis, as much as it's a science crisis. So so just for folks, you know, watching who 
all right, we all believe in science. We all want to move people. We all have family members that may not agree with us. Um, and maybe we fought with them online and, 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 and maybe that's not the right strategy is it maybe does have to be more in person, but what are some of the, um, tricks of the trade that, that you could share with folks watching right now? I guess the main thing to say is that in a human face-to-face encounter, listening counts for a lot. And it's hard. It's hard to listen and not interrupt somebody when they're telling you about some giant conspiracy theory that you think, well, I'm going to deplatform this right now. You know, that just by listening that you're, you know, giving it oxygen. That's not the case. You, you, I mean, don't let them think that they've convinced you. But the human tendency is that when somebody is, no matter how rabid they are about a topic, they will eventually stop and say, well, what do you think? You know, have I convinced you? And then that's your opportunity not to say you're a fool or to, you know, to argue with them, but maybe to ask questions. Because, again, the anecdotal accounts that I've read have to do with people asking a question. The young woman I just told you about was somebody who had asked a question. And so one of my very favorite questions that uh, I will use, and I use this on flat earthers, by the way. So this is against hardcore science deniers is I'll let them present whatever they they want to say. And and usually it has to do with evidence, you know, the evidence for climate change, the evidence that the CDC is corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'll ask them this. It seems to me that your um, beliefs are based on evidence. Is that right? And they'll say yes. And then I'll say, well, if that's true, what evidence could I present to change your mind? What, what would have to be true to show that you were wrong? They tend not to be able to answer that. Or let me put it this way. It makes them think for a moment. And then if they can't answer that question, you know, don't, don't fill the space. Just let them sit with the ability not to answer that question for a moment. And that's an uncomfortable couple of minutes when they realize, wait a minute, if no matter what the evidence is, I'd still believe this. Maybe it's not based on evidence. Maybe it's faith. Maybe it's ideology. Maybe it's politics. I'm just not going to give up my views. Um, make them a little uncomfortable. So you mentioned faith, and that was my next question. Um, there's so much identity, and I, I understand that you, you say there's a spectrum, which is really important yes. because... Um, you know, we all have family members, of course, I'm sure, uh, and friends uh, through our lives that, uh, you know, there, there, there doesn't seem like there's much to move them. And it's almost as if their beliefs have become their identities. Yes. Um, you, do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So it's, it's one thing to challenge somebody about a couple of ideas and and maybe they're more flexible and and willing to communicate. But then there are folks who their beliefs are their identities. Um, and that could be religious identity. It could be a Trump supporter now. I mean, whatever Trump says, they'll take because it's their identity. It's their community. It's how they feel they belong in a time of crisis. They may have joined because they were seeking at one point, but now it is their lives. So how do you, I mean, are those people that you can sway at this point? Or are those the ones we say, okay, they're, we, can't, we can't reach them, but we can reach these other folks. Um, it's, if you can tell in advance 
I take my hat off to you because you don't always know. Sometimes people are the hardest core until that moment when they say, well, I guess I was wrong. And that happens, right? So, um, I mean, there's a famous case of a, uh, a U.S. member of Congress, Jim Bridenstine, who was such a hardcore um, uh, climate denier that he gave a speech in Congress about, you know, with all these false claims that, you know, climate deniers make. And so, of course, Trump appointed him to be the head of NASA, because what else would you do with a climate denier? Within a month, Bridenstine changed his mind publicly and said he had been wrong. Now, why? Um, it, I think it's because he, was, he said he read a lot. Well, he had read a lot before. But all of a sudden, he was supervising all of these NASA scientists who were not the evil other anymore. He knew them by on a first-name basis. He was their boss. He hung out with them in the halls. He had lunch with them and began to realize that these are pretty trustworthy, dedicated people and could uh, could change his uh, change his mind. So you are absolutely right that when you attack a science denier's beliefs, you are attacking their identity. It's not just what they believe, it's who they are. If you attack a scientist's beliefs, they may be irritated with you, but if you've got the evidence and they're scientists, they're supposed to change their mind. But with a denier, it really, as I said, it's not about evidence in the first place. It, it, as you said, it's about identity. So. But is it possible to change someone's identity? Yes, but that tells you the scope of the problem. It's hard, right? In order to change someone's identity, in order to have them give up one of those core beliefs about Trump or vaccines or climate or whatever it is, you're, you have to take the long game. You can't just you know, tell them they're stupid, give them a few facts and move on. That's just not gonna be a productive conversation. I've personally um, found when influencing, when, when, when trying to bring people into the circle of communicating about science and facts, um, it helps to sometimes dismantle the, the provider of the information yes. they're giving. So, for instance, if they're getting their information from, you know, an easy one, Fox News and Tucker Carlson, um, you know, immediately if it's about science, say, well, it's interesting that, you know, oil companies are the ones uh, backing the show or, or, you know, also with Tucker Carlson, uh, if he's talking about income inequality, be like, this is somebody who grew up in wealth as he's making, you know, $60 million a year. Are you going to take advantage in these? So sometimes I feel like that helps, but is, is that, is that really a good tool? Or is that just something that makes me feel better? Um, if, if you can challenge the credibility of a denier source, that that is always to the good. The problem is that one of the tropes of science denial is that they rely on fake experts and denigrate real experts. So you're attacking their sources. They'll attack your sources. I had an email exchange with a guy the other day where he made some outrageous claim about COVID. And I said, please provide me your source. And he did. And it came just from where you'd expect. And I said, well, now, you know, turnabout's fair play. I'm going to provide you some sources. And he said, yes, but they can't be academic, scientific, or governmental. I don't trust those. You know, what, what can you do uh, in, a, in a situation like that? So if it's possible for you to undermine somebody's source, that's good. By the way, um, when you're entering one of these conversations, it's important for you to have reliable information. And um, the Yale Climate Coalition uh, has got a terrific website where you can go. They've also got a working paper uh, I remember reading about this whole problem of the spectrum. They divided the science centers up into seven or eight different categories. Um, 
uh, some of which you could persuade and some of which you couldn't. And they sometimes give scripts uh, for what you can you can do. So the, uh, that that's very good. And there, there are a couple of other uh, websites that, uh, you know, the work of uh, John Cook, who's a cognitive scientist, um, he's uh, he's really done a lot of work on climate change and you know how to talk to people about it. Um, now, I think the question is, how do we talk to folks? Because it, it is it is much more than, you know, d- d- climate change is is a policy issue right now. I mean, we need to actually have real politics that shift uh, the way that we handle you know, and prepare for climate change, but the vaccinations also a policy issue, but there are folks who, no matter how much you try, they're not going to get vaccined and it is going to continue to spread maybe at different rates, maybe in a different, but we're seeing how the variants are affecting, um, with solely the unvaccinated folks who are, are, are really, you know, exacerbating this. Um, so this is the crisis of the moment and it's, but we're not gonna be able to convince everybody Surely. So how do we what's what's the best tool with the spectrum at this point? It's shocking, isn't it? And the the parallels between climate change and covid are are really overwhelming. I mean, you look I remember, you know, I study this. And at the time when covid denial started, I thought, well, now, finally, you know, people are going to understand that when it's a global crisis and it can affect our lives, they need to take it seriously. And then I watched in real time as that disintegrated, people won't even take a vaccine to save their own life, let alone, you know, change their oil consumption habits to save the Maldives or, you know, their own country uh, in the future. Or even now as Greece is on fire and I'm speaking to you from Portland, Oregon, where we had the largest fire ever in the history of the state, the uh, the bootleg fire. So um, there are. There are things. Uh, sorry, I lost uh, track there for a second. Re- rephrase the the question. Uh, just in in terms of the spectrum, I mean, it's one thing you don't have to hit every climate denier to be able to change policy on climate. Just enough to be able to influence it. Yes, but in in right. the case of a vaccine uh, and a pandemic, you really like most people need to actually do their part. Otherwise, we're just going to be in this forever. Yeah, no, that that's right. It's it's frustrating because, as I said before, there aren't any magic words that you can say to a vaccine denier, to a COVID denier. Um, and I just I think you have to use the same methodology that I've been talking about. As people are polarized, I mean, you're you're seeing terrible stories these days about. There was something in California the other day about a a fight, um, a, you know, a, a fist fight in public over. Um, uh, COVID vaccines. Um, that's not going to convince anybody. And I mean, tempers are getting hot on uh, on both sides. Um, the, you know, there was a there was a very interesting. Here's something I can offer that's optimistic. There was a focus group done by a GOP uh, a Republican pollster um, named Frank Luntz, where he had a focus group of people who. I'm not going to say they were vaccine deniers, but they were skeptical. They didn't want to get the they hadn't been vaccinated yet. They didn't want to get the covid vaccine. And he was trying out different messages to see what might work for them. And what I think he stumbled upon uh, was that by listening to what they had to say about their reasons, they ultimately became much more malleable. So he he was looking at, you know, the different groups that he had in politicians, scientists, you know, different people to speak to them through video message and which one worked and which didn't trying to measure that. I think the effect was 
that he was taking them seriously and listening to them. Now, the one message that did break through, that they said broke through, was from a scientist who took his time um, and said, you know, look, science doesn't know everything. Here's what we do know. And here's why we changed our mind on this. And, you know, here, here's the, here what the statistics are. And, you know, he just, he approached them in a very human way, not in an, in an authoritative, you know, I'm a scientist, so you better listen to me, but just sharing information. By the end of that focus group, 19 out of 20 of the people had changed their mind and had said that they were more likely to take their COVID vaccines. There, there is a way to do this, okay? Um, but it is, it, it, it requires the right method and the right message uh, and a patient person uh, to do it. And, you know, it's, it's easy to get despondent about it. It's easy to get angry. I get angry. But it, to show it, um, and when you're trying to convince someone, it just turns them off. Oof. Amazing advice. Uh, and, and, and of course, being in the media, we're taught to fight. So, well, I'm a philosopher. We've been known to get into some battles as well. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard in the place of philosophy right now. Um, you know, with that being said, uh, I, 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 I applaud, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. I applaud Frank Luntz because, uh, yes. just by asking people to be part of a focus group, I mean, that alone is it became a vehicle to open folks up and make them more amenable, which whether that was his intention or not, it, it ended up working out. Um, so like, what's that old line? Meet people where they are. And then if, take it from there. if you ask somebody for their opinion, you flatter them. Yes. And then they're more likely to want to know what your opinion mm. is. Mm. It, it's a, it's a, you know, when, uh, when I was at the that flat earth convention, <laughs> I, I was quiet the first day. But then when I started to speak and they knew who I was and, you know, were suspicious as hell, I still would let, when I entered a conversation, would let them speak first. I mean, what else was I going to do? There were 650 of them. There was one of me. <laughs> but it always happened in that conversation that after I let them spout off everything that they thought was convincing evidence, and then I still shut up. I didn't just jump mm -hmm. in with 10 reasons they were wrong. I just kept quiet. They'd say, don't you think I'm right? You know, is, is, doesn't that make sense? And then I'd say, well, I have a few questions. That, that and, and I didn't convince anybody on the spot, but I did get them to listen to me. And I got them to be curious about what I thought, which if I'd come mm -hmm. in there, just, you know, bowling them over never would have happened because these were strangers and I was in a hostile uh, environment. Right. And um, it was a searing experience, but I did it because I wanted to learn how to talk to the hardest core deniers so that I could then go talk to climate deniers. Exactly. You know, it's so interesting about this, um, just as, as we wrap, uh, I've I've watched some of these interviews with, and, and every, actually on our show we've interviewed, um, hostage negotiators. Yes. Folks who go into, whether it's uh, <laughs> Syria, as one of our, our guests had, yeah. and had to find hostages or or rat you know dealing with radical um you know uh, cult leaders uh who've held hostages or you know the more traditional hostage negotiation like you said it's it's you let them talk you ask questions and then you build that trust and then little little by little you may be able to move them over to to your side and i'm sure lawyers experience that too when they're negotiating everybody it's it's negotiation essentially 
lawyers are sometimes a little more hostile, but the the hostage negotiator is good. Another, another some literature that I've read on uh, uh, deprogramming people from cults. Ooh. Quite interesting the tactics that they use. Um, not bad tactics to use for this purpose as well, because if you think about it, science deniers have been indoctrinated. Right. They didn't come up on their own with the idea that there were microchips in the vaccine. They read that somewhere. And you know what? That lie was created by someone for a purpose. That's right. the, the disinformation is intentionally created because it serves somebody else's purpose. And then it gets out there and gets amplified. And science deniers are victims in many cases because they believe this stuff. And if you remember that, it can help you have some empathy in these conversations with mm. What a great way to have it, to end us. Uh, having a perspective that you come at it as if they're victims. Um, and it's predatory. I mean, it's ultimately that side. This is this is yeah. somebody who, who you, know, you talk about the man behind the curtain. Uh, yeah. So many folks think that, yes, and, and they're, they're preying on you. <laughs> to, to, a, to a conspiracy-minded person, that might just do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. It's like flip the minute. script. <laughs> flip, I hate to tell you. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I <laughs> there is some evidence that um, I have to say it's not a conspiracy yes. theory. There <laughs> is some evidence that this disinformation is being created by nameable individuals. Right. Um, that uh, you know, and and there aren't that many of them out there to do it. They just get it amplified all over Twitter and social media, mm -hmm. and uh, that's it. Couldn't agree more. We'd love to have you back on. Uh, I don't feel like this is going to go away anytime soon. So maybe we can talk about some of those, you know, the, the, the agendas of, of some of the folks spreading this misinformation and, um, and how it's facilitated, because that's a whole other topic that I'm fascinated it by. Is. We need like an hour for that. So thank you. I, I would enjoy that. Thanks very much for having me on your program. Of course. Thank you so much. Take care. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door, wherever you are. Sunset Lake CBD has all types of products uh, for everyone. They offer tinctures and gummies and salves and coffee, all designed to help with stress, aches, and pains. Uh, they actually took a Ben and Jerry's farm, talk about progressive, like they found the most aggressive farmers uh, in Vermont, and they decided to flip it and diversify it by growing premium hemp. And when you support as a customer Sunset Lake CBD, you're supporting sustainable agriculture that enhances rural economies and creates meaningful employment in the community. And by meaningful employment, they're starting wages at $15 an hour, and their employees own the majority of the company. And on top of all that, they support independent media like the Namihi Show, like the Majority Report, and of course, David Pakman uh, over at the David Pakman Show, who has 16 years since he's launched his show. I just saw that today. Congratulations, David. Um, all sorts of fun products. They have a new dog biscuit out. Uh, humans can eat it too. We've talked about that a little bit, but they have no artificial colorings or flavorings and uh, the ingredients, I think there's only like a few ingredients like peanut butter, pumpkin and oat flour. I think that's it. Just three. Um, so if you can eat all three of those, you can eat those dog biscuits with your dog. Because I know a lot of people like to do everything with their dog. Maybe not everything. Well, who knows? You know, you might be into that. Um, <laughs> I, uh, of course, am a big fan of the tinctures. They help me sleep through the night. 
especially during hot nights in the summertime when uh, you may not have proper air conditioning, which is something that I was dealing with the last few nights, but I was able to sleep through. I just had a little bit of CBD and you woke up in the middle of the night, put a little bit more in and I was able to sleep through the night. Uh, the gummies do the trick as well. They're delicious. I can't control myself though. That's the only thing is that you, I don't believe you can eat like one. You have to eat like seven, right? Nine or 10. Uh, I feel the same way about the chocolate. So I try to stick to the pure stuff, <laughs> whether it's the hemp, smoking it, um, or of course the tincture. And of course there are, um, there are salves that can help with like aches and pains, everything else, but you can do the coffee as well. But the chocolate, the sweet stuff, I love it because it's delicious. All right. You can get 20% off of your order. If you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, capital N-O-M-I, go to sunsetlakecbd.com and type in Nomi for 20% off and make sure to say that we sent you over there. Welcome back to the Nomiki Show. Oh, look who it is. Professor Harvey K. We did not have enough time with you last week, and we were going to talk about something completely different. But of course, in the meantime, the world blew up. Um, <laughs> every week it blows up. Once a, a week. Yeah. Once a week, sometimes twice a week. Yeah. We're lucky enough. I'm kidding. Uh, if, if some in the news are lucky enough, not us, <laughs> three times a week. Um, Professor Harvey K. is, of course, Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. He is the author of Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, The Fight for Freedoms, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and FDR on Democracy, and so many other books. You have Take Hold of Our History in the background, which is, I think, important right now. Um, yeah. Professor Harvey K. Harvey, so I want to discuss Afghanistan, but there's um, this is a huge topic. So I want to kind of put it in the confines of something I've been struggling with personally online. And, and I don't know how much of this is authentic or some of it is actually pushed out there to create these divides, but, um, and we'll reference some points too, because, you know, the media is not doing any favors to these, you know, to, to having these discussions either. Um, President Biden, of course, pulled out of Afghanistan, not overnight. Uh, obviously, this is something that has been going on. Right. The Trump administration set it forward, uh, but it seemed as if it was a little haphazard, <laughs> seemed. Um, with that being said, there is a, a, a real substantive conversation about two things, right? There is a refugee crisis. Um, there are women in particular, feminists, um, who are being put at major risk right now by the Taliban. Yeah. Um, and then simultaneously, there is a conversation about, well, we need to get out. Uh, and I think sometimes what gets jumbled in this conversation about getting out is, do we need to get out because we need to be right about imperialism? Or do we need to get out because we're putting too many resources in and it's not going anywhere. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm left, I don't, I'm, I, I believe that we should have never gone into Afghanistan uh, just to put that on the table to begin with, because you know how left audiences work. I believe that we should have never gone into Afghanistan. Um, I believe that we should have gotten out of Afghanistan. I believe that President Biden did not think deeply in his administration, um, did not think deeply about what it would take to get out. And I feel as if this is a Ben Rhodes strategy, perhaps, that mirrors some of the 
Obama, hands off of Syria, Obama, <laughs> hands off of Libya. Uh, and I say that because there were never boots on the ground um, and there was a lot of conflict. And so there's a lot here, not to mention China, uh, which we'll get to, I guess, a little bit later. So so I just I just threw that out there, like vomited this all out. And and Harvey, I mean, how are you dissecting all of this? Well, let me say, first of all, that I'm 20 years ago when I was 50 years old. So I was what I was middle aged. Right. And and it was striking at the time. And I, let, let me be honest. I'm not even know all, quite often how well I can talk, speak as, as an intellectual on the subject, because I won't deny that when the trade towers came down, okay, that clearly American military action was warranted. I have no reservations in saying that. But it did seem to me that the Bush administration just went wild in the course of the wake of 9-11, because not only let, let's start, I mean, you know, strictly objectively without any kind of political bend, let, let's be objective about it. Number one, that's an administration that not only decided they were going to go into Afghanistan, which I'll hold suspend, but they also decided at the very same time, they're going to cut taxes massively for the very rich. OK, uh, people forget that because of the Trump Brilliant. tax cuts. Yep. At, OK, at the, and then at the same time target Iraq, supposedly for weapons of mass destruction. And we know the disaster that that became. Now, let me make it clear as well that there would have been there would there, there were good reasons for some kind of involvement in the, in both locations. I mean, the, the Kurds, you know, it's always funny how and I make this seriously, how the left just doesn't talk about Kurdistan. OK, and and I remember that distinctly because I, I a friend of mine had gone in and recorded the gassing of the village, not the actual gassing, but in the wake of the gassing, she recorded on film the devastation wrought. I mean, it, it was those kinds of things. Now, similarly, in Afghanistan, in the case of Afghanistan, we, we had no business believing, no business believing we were going to turn it into any kind of stable, quasi democratic republic. And 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 you could you could feel it as those of us who actually know anything about history, you could feel it at the time as we know the kind of of wreckage that empires have discovered when they go into Afghanistan. OK, and in, in the case of the prior empire that went in the, the Soviet empire, we actually underwrote, OK, forces to dr help drive them out that later, of course, were then weaponized with our own military equipment. I mean, the whole thing was those forces being the the Taliban. Yeah, that kind, those kinds of forces exactly. So, I mean, one could just feel it. Okay, I I want to say that one thing that popped into my head recently was I vaguely recollect John Kerry. I believe it was John Kerry at the time talking about, and maybe it was one of the other senators, you know, sort of liberal Democratic senators, saying, "Let's not go in." Let's treat this as a police action. OK, now, you're probably too what, young to what is what does that mean? That would mean you send in you, you send in some kind of coalition of special forces to get yeah. Al Qaeda. To get to get Al Qaeda. OK, hey, hang on a second, because I want to I want to this is nuances everything in these kinds of conversations. Yeah. And you've mentioned a couple of things to me that are that stand out. Right. 
um, the denial of gas attacks or the or ignoring, I should say, not denial. Maybe in some yeah. cases denial, um, but in some cases just ignoring the gas attacks in, in, in Iraq. Um, not saying that, let me be very clear, it's not justified going in Iraq. This is against the Kurds. Let, let against me. the Kurds, exactly. So a denial of human rights violations. So, uh, you know, obviously the U.S. went into Iraq. Um, under a Republican administration. Obviously, uh, Reagan armed what was to end up being the Taliban to fight the Soviets at the time. Um, in the case of Obama, uh, you know, obviously the United States was on board with NATO intervening in Libya, but no troops were on the ground. It's important to distinguish these things because yeah. it's how the center left and the center tried to appear to learn its lessons from what clearly the right and the, and the center right were doing aggressively to make money off of it. So I think, you know, I'm looking at this Afghanistan situation to myself and, and And by the way, one other thing we should, and we shouldn't also forget that there was the, um, was it, I sometimes flip the names, the Gulf war in 71, not 71, um, 91, 91, 91. Right. Yeah. The, George Bush's father, George, okay, George H.W. Bush, OK, who, who create who literally was able to create a, a massive coalition of forces right. and That's was right. also determined not to go into Iraq or at least to withdraw and not take it all the way to Baghdad. That's right. So and and then look, I mean, one could argue about that overall. But I, I remember that the Marxist uh, scholar at the LSE, Fred Halliday, and I were two of the rare people on the left who actually f- supported the idea of the Gulf War at the time, because because there whether we like the Kuwaitis or not as a as a kingdom, you, you, the international community cannot stand by and watch one con- country conquer another. It's just so. Just so can't let's do explain it. this more. I mean, this ultimately, and 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 I'm grappling with this myself personally. I have to say this, like you know, we let's go back to Kuwait in a second, but I want to use Syria as an example. There. I would say the broad left, the broad left is in agreement that Assad is a murderous dictator. As um, was his father. As was his father, who has ruined, I mean, whether it's like the history of of the birthplace of civil, one of the birthplaces of civilization. I'm in Korea right. right now, so I can't, you know, ignore the Minoans. Murdered t- um, tens of thousands of, of, of their own people murdered tens of thousands of their own people. And then simultaneously, there are, are folks who have, I believe, interest in denying gas attacks happened. Um, but this is this is a playbook that has existed. This isn't a new yes, playbook. Right. That's with right. the intention to prevent any sort of American involvement, which I, as being somebody who is not interventionist, I, I feel, the, 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 and, that, and by the way, that was what Obama did, not, you know, ignoring that he sent more troops into Afghanistan. Like, I mean, there's there's so much that he did do in other yeah. ways, too. But he was so, it was, you could feel the fear from him when it came to the Mideast, given the mistakes of Iraq and how he came into power. Sure. Don't forget, he was an anti-Iraq war, you know, uh, activist. Right. Um, and that's sort of how he differentiated himself from Hillary Clinton. So he's afraid of doing anything, afraid about intervening. Afraid of doing anything with Syria and afraid of doing anything with Libya. And as a result, you had open borders in Libya. You had folks who were just picking up weapons left and right and shooting their neighbors and shooting their brothers. And, you know, seriously, Um, and creating a position where ISIS could come in, seize oil fields and fund ISIS for the next 10 years off of Libyan oil and obviously other places, too. Simultaneously, you have Syria, where Assad 
could, you know, smelled an opportunity and, and as do other world powers. So I feel like sometimes on the left, we just, we simplify things like U.S. empire, bad, everything else, non-existent. Yeah, I mean, I won't make any all friends. All are bad. Not, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to make friends. All are bad. Right. right? I, 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 I won't make any friends on the left when I say this, that, uh, that, Sometimes we grab hold of words to, dis- to to completely lambaste a situation, and it, as a consequence, immediately sets up yes and no response. So the word imperialism, okay? I mean, look, I mean, yeah, I mean, the United States has operated as an empire, and it's done terrible things in those terms. Um, but it's also the case that, I mean, it's not like any other major force in the world are the good guys. And the question, be, and let's not also forget that we are a very diverse people and there are folks who have interests that will, will express themselves in Washington that will influence things. And unfortunately, however, the biggest powerful interests have been the military industrial complex. Boom, okay. And, and in fact, um, I kept wondering to myself what the accountants for the military industrial complex were doing as they watched Afghanistan fall, if they were calculating their... <laughs> their next set of expenditures. That that's a sidebar of my perverse fantasy. It's but, not uh, perverse at all. That's exactly. No, it's not. I mean, there, right. are, there are folks who've been posting yeah. how much how much the military contractors. I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, Harvey, but my no, that's response okay. in the beginning when 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 uh, Biden said he was pulling out of Afghanistan, my the the automatic American skeptic in me was like, oh great, I can't wait to see how many Eric Princes or neoliberal Eric Princes because we're factionalized here in our country uh, go in and, and swoop in this opportunity and send private forces. But well, hey, listen, when when the embassy in Kabul was evacuated, it wasn't emptied. Civilian contractors were still ocu- were still in the embassy. And, and I always say to myself, this uh, first time I really encountered this idea of civilian contract wasn't in, in the case of Iraq. And, you know, they're essentially mercenaries. And I thought, you know, what, however bad we are when we're going to be fighting wars with mercenaries, we're really falling back into the worst case scenarios of empire. So, you know. No, I mean, this is this is y- literally yeah. like Christopher Columbus <laughs> was a mercenary. To an extent. Yes. I, yeah. Well, in that sense, I mean, it's sort of pre private contractor. Well, well, the only thing to remember about in those days is that nation states were really in formation. So, you know, Columbus didn't sail for what was it? He was from Genoa, Columbus. I mean, I mean, he sailed for Spain because that's where the money was to outfit exactly. a voyage. OK, um, you know, so a lot of these I think the the first real sort of nation states were were probably. Britain and France and and in some ways the United States because prior to that they were sort of multinational monarch monarchical you know you know states. So okay, let's let's kind of like dig in a little bit more. Um, yeah. We are an empire, undeniable. Yeah. We have been able to, in coalition with other powerful forces. Um, much smaller countries than ours, <laughs> uh, create some sort of quote unquote world order that suits the advantage of these forces. I'm being very intentional with my words, right? So whether it's Saudi Arabia and Israel, um, I can't think of anybody else right now that has that kind of power. Well, I want to make one thing clear. Okay. Again, this isn't going to make any friends on the left. 
the existence of Israel was not exactly predicated on American empire. Uh, the Soviets had a, I mean, it was, it, Israel didn't, was not created because the United States created Israel. It's just not the case. Okay. Um, it, it, but, it, but, but it, it has become the case that the regime in the, in Israel, okay. Which is obviously right wing and on occasion, almost, you know, almost, uh, authoritarian and I won't get into the debate about should we de designate Israel an apartheid state or not. I, I just won't do that. Um, but it is the case that the United States, yes, is an empire and it has these, this odd bedfellows coalition. But by the way, the Middle East is so complex. It's the case that the Gulf states would probably, and has have already shown their willingness to deal with Israel far more than some others, the Saudis hate the Jordanians. They put literally with the British push the Jordanians out of the, the Arabian Peninsula to what's now Jordan. The Jordanians have always, always, by the way, the Jordanians long just literally marginalized the Palestinians in Jordan. I, most people will not remember because they're too young. Black September in mm -hmm. the early 70s. I mean, it, it, it's so complex. Let, let's not treat Afghanistan as That's, part of okay. the Middle East either. This That's is, a big mistake people make. This is a beautiful lesson here, right? So our political, our, our, our spectrum is so limited in our in, in, yeah. in the US. Um, political spectrum, meaning coalitions being built, factions, et cetera, how we build these coalitions. So just our basis of understanding politics is so much more, it's like bifurcated compared to everywhere else on the planet that has some semblance of a democracy. Then yeah. add to it the layers of, of, of of geography. I mean, we have two countries <laughs> around us, two very, very, very different countries around us uh, that are our allies, you know, whether or not we treat them fairly or not, uh, or work with them fairly or not. Um, and then we have two ginormous oceans. And that's, you know, that's that old line, right? The biggest gift and the biggest weakness of, of strength yeah. and the weakness of the US is yeah. our, uh, is our one, of, is our one of FDR's biggest challenges was to persuade Americans that the two oceans were not creating the fortress that Americans imagined, okay? In the age of everything from submarines to, to bombers that could literally take off from, you know, anywhere and cross an ocean, so. Uh, well, um, I'm Pearl Harbor didn't, didn't well, that depended that on that depended on aircraft carriers, right? And of course that yeah, was I still mean, at that point, yeah, I mean, Hawaii was our colony in the, in the Pacific, so. So um, Hawaii being colony Pacific, okay. Uh, the, I, I, I'm, I didn't mean to go off into that. No, Sorry. no, no, no. This is fascinating. I'm. Well, actually, I'm, as long as you mention, I will tell you that one of the one of the things I actually was in international relations. I don't tell people this, but I my, my, my graduate program really. I did a minor <laughs> undergraduate. I did a graduate program, which was a lot of IR. And um, one of the things that I one of the reasons I left is that the world, the the world was. The world was so complex that IR theories to me collapsed. Okay. And, and it's also the case that my interest became more and more a question of class struggle questions as opposed to global kinds of, of questions. What time period was this though? Because I think this is a really important point. So I was a grad student in the sort of early 70s through mid through 75, 76. And um but I really, I really got so turned on to questions out of Marxist thought that I really was interested in the class struggle between landlords and peasants in Latin America, labor questions in the United States. It, th that sort of just so I, I, I retreated, you might say, from global 
affairs. But having said that, one of the things that's striking to me is not this is true for so many different folks that we, we forget geography. Strike. So, can I move us a little bit just towards Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, no, that's why. That's why I mentioned we have a because because we're we our political system is so um, simplified. Yeah, by design, and because of our geography is is, is simplified. We as Americans um, have a simplified kind of understanding of how everything's playing out right now, and the multidimensional aspects of who's. Yeah. Right. You know, which bad actor is worse than the other bad actor and why, you know, just being there prevents another bad actor or whatever. I mean, so strangely enough, because in part wondering what we were going to talk about, but also my own former students of mine were asking me, what did I know of something? And I didn't know enough. I actually have been listening this morning to podcasts about Afghanistan as an international relations question. And again, I'm I'm listening and I'm, I'm a student in that respect. But one of the interesting things that comes up is what, how Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Turkey, and Russia, and the stands, you know, the various old part of the Soviet Union, the stands, how they see the fall of the American-backed Afghan Republic, okay, I think it was called the Islamic Republic. I'm not sure. Um, now it's the Emirate. No, they've given given a new name to it under the Taliban already. But the point is, um, I mean, in some ways, my one of my students said to me, "Will Iran? How does Iran view this in Afghanistan?" I said, "I don't know, but it, it's also the case they have to worry about refugees on the, in one sense, but it's also the case that merely because you know, they're, they're Islamic republics doesn't necessarily make it a friendly relationship. That's pretty clear. Um, but and similarly, Pakistan, which was in some ways a refuge for the Taliban for quite a while. I mean, Pakistan, the Pakistan, he said to me, Pakistan has never been a terribly stable place. Will the Taliban have allies that will, would try to, to command Pakistan next? And I said, well, the difference is Pakistan has an has a a fierce military, to put it bluntly, a very fierce military. Super important, because I was yeah. thinking, I, I'm so glad you mentioned this. I was, I, we're taking this to another level now, but but I thought about this the other day. I said, well, who, the obvious people that I've, I've, I've been at least commenting on that, that benefit from this scenario, and, um, and perhaps the intention by Biden, just, just to roll yeah. back for a second, of him pulling out is not just that he was... Uh, doing it because Trump had already done this, but there's this weird overlap um, that they can't say out loud, right? There is much of Trump's foreign policy that mirrors Biden's foreign policy that you can't say out loud. And this yeah. is China, right? Yeah. That China's playing this long game. There are folks like Jeffrey Sachs who thinks that it's, I mean, there's a lot of folks who think that China's not as powerful um, or Russia's not as powerful as yeah. we think, but then simultaneously right. think that America's over. So it's like, well, what does that even mean in, in the context of the world today? Um, but we say it's because China has invested heavily in Afghanistan, using the U.S. military as sort of a protection agent so that they're able to, you know, build pipelines and invest and um, being very strategic and using it's like very, it's it's how do you use the other po- world power to. Oh, yeah. No, advantage, I, right. Right. Uh, right. To complicate it more. I would never forget back in back in the early 70s and the question of the, the Portuguese colonies in southern Africa. And, uh, you know, who was behind the, 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 the Marxists in um, 
Angola and Mozambique. And in the case of Angola, there were two Marxist forces, one of which was actually being funded by South Africa. So, you know, I mean, the world is more complex than than we allow for. And and cable news doesn't help a lot, obviously. I mean, once upon a time, there were serious there were serious programs on television that tried to deal with this. Now, the best you could do is maybe and people balk when I say this, the best you could do is probably try to catch programs on the BBC, I guess. I mean, you know, something like that. Yeah. They have a history of being in these regions, so they have a little more of a perspective on it. I mean, just in general, I mean, as as much as corporate media I'm in Europe right now, as much as corporate media has so much role in, in, in media yeah. in Europe as well, right. there is less, they don't, because... Because of because of geography, <laughs> that's yeah. what you're saying. Um, you know, I'm in the Balkans right now, and 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 folks are very familiar with what's happening in the Balkans right now. They're very familiar with Orban. They they have a great sense of what's happening in Macedonia, northern Macedonia. They have a yeah. wonderful sense of 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 the transitions that are happening in Albania right now. That's stuff that like what nobody can get. What it doesn't even is that going to get covered? Maybe on Farid Zakaria's show, maybe. Um, so just just to go back to this, so because I think Pakistan, and I thought okay. Obviously, China is is the factor that we're all, you know, Trump wanted to take it to China in a very aggressive way. And I think Biden does, too. But he was sort of caught. Um, but again, he could have done something to I don't I, I've been evacuated more or less from from Libya. Yeah. I know they, they didn't they didn't say it to me that way. They just said he'll be back in a few weeks. And then there was no few weeks. And then literally yeah. two minutes later, everybody yeah. was pulled out. Yeah. The evacuation is a fascinating is to me. I mean, it's tragic, but it's, it's fascinating to, to ask these questions. And by the way, the Republicans will not, will not fail to spend incredible hours pushing for investigations. And when the investigations occur in the various committees, they will just go after the Biden administration. But even some of the Democrats are right now asking what the hell happened. Which is why we have to win the House and Senate. Yes. You cannot. Uh, Joe right. Biden, That's right. you don't want to have your, 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 you don't want another uprising. You have right. to put money into the party to win the House and yeah. Senate. And if you're in California, make sure that uh, Newsom, yes. for all of his faults, is 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 not uh, the loser in the uh, recall. But, but here's the thing. So one of the first thoughts I had, you know, because everyone said, wow, it, it's collapsing within a week. Right? The, the Taliban are overrunning almost all of the country. There are redoubts that they have, they haven't taken and may not be able to take, but it is the, but the question I kept saying is if surely we had the intelligence to know how the Afghan military was probably infiltrated. I mean, all along, what would it take to have, it's all volunteer army. What would it take to have Taliban forces enlist in the military for this very moment? I mean, so the collapse of the, everyone keeps saying, well, they were untrainable. The fact is that the fact is that I'm sure the Taliban beautifully, in their terms, infiltrated the Afghan military. And so and by the way, I could have sworn I heard Biden say something to the effect of, well, we we think, you know, they figure they've got like 10 months or whatever, you know, what months. Well, in other words, it's going to collapse after those months. So Biden probably said to himself, well, it's going to collapse. Anyhow, let's just let's just get the hell out now and yes. suffer the consequences. But and but the, the thing is. The thing is that right now, is anybody talking about the progressive agenda that supposedly is, is being advanced in Congress? I mean, I, I mean, the timing, I, I don't I don't. God, if you, like to manip- like if you want to manipulate, if you want to grab conspiracy, grab so conspiracy. Wag the dog, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. 
you know, the grand. Well, and now you tell me what what's going to happen in Congress. I can't speak to it, but it is the case that the collapse came even more fast and furiously than I imagined it was ever going to happen. I thought it would probably take some weeks to happen. But, but I, I don't think this serves. I don't understand. So the grand conspiracy, if this were a wag the dog scenario and you want to distract Biden doesn't come off looking strong here, just like Obama didn't come. No, off well, see, I don't. Here's the other, his foreign policy. Here's the other thing to consider. And this is this is there are signals. That's why I say listening to the BBC. The other day I listened to the BBC and they had a retired American general. And he talked about I mean, no, this is no joke. He talked about it as if, you know, they did made a that the whole thing was a disaster. And he was really holding holding the Biden administration up for for ridicule. But then also in the Biden administration, this guy, what's his name? Blanken, you know, Blanken. Yeah, he, he said this isn't Saigon. Well, within 24 hours, the photos were exactly Saigon. I mean, I mean, it is it is confusion. But so here's the thing I ask myself. I don't think the military wanted out so fast. And I and so, I, I just I just don't get it. I mean, the, the signals that I've been hearing are that the military didn't want out in this way. And and then on top of that. So one of the podcasts I listened to this morning, Deep State Radio. Keep that in mind. It's actually a fascinating. Hmm. I, I actually find it more interesting to listen to late at night than just about anything. <laughs> You're like, Muslim, can I have a shot? Because of a these are people who are inside. They're all inside the Beltway people. With oh, it's actual inside the Beltway people. Oh, all inside the Beltway people. So you listen people to the who have been launch. in yeah. and out of the administration. This people who are associated with the American Enterprise Institute yeah. and similar right. kinds of things, but also people who I believe think of themselves in because this term is totally inapplicable to anyone these days. Probably progressive, but they're liberals. Okay, they're not the they're not the right wing. No, these are liberals. These are not like capital right. L liberals. Not but I was listening to this morning, and there was a woman speaking to the fact. So they had, her position was, she started off saying, "What a tragedy! I'm I'm heartbroken." And I thought she was going to talk about seeing what people on the street are going through or at the airport. And she said, "We could have," and she talked about we could have stayed on. Oh my like, god! Could have invested. We didn't. We've never invested properly in the enterprise. I mean, it was. And I thought, what? And she's in the she's in associated with American enterprises. So there are those neocons. Their neocons are split, and some of them are now very happy Biden has done what he's done. I mean, David Frum has got to be the funniest guy in DC. David Frum, who was the guy who coined the expression, I believe, axis of evil as a speechwriter, mm-hmm. is now sort of sort of, you know. It's as if he has no memory of his own role in the neocon. No, no, this is a model. business. This is a business. Harvey, right, of course it is. Absolutely. This is a business. Right. You stay on track, you're nimble, you shift. This is and then a the Harvard academic, yeah. Stephen Walt, who probably knows what he's talking about, said, look, should never have gone in the way we did. We should have gotten out. We had moments where we could have gotten out. Yes. And now we're, we're the tragedy is a consequence of 20 years of what yes. we never should have done. <gasps> But then, but let me, but can, I'm going to, I'm going to say one more thing. Cause I really would hate to leave the show today without mentioning it. I don't listen. I don't watch Fox. Believe, believe me, unless when you're on and you let me know. Okay. But Laura Ingram, okay, Jesus. she segued away from the question of Afghanistan on the grand scale, because she knows they all know ultimately that this is as much the Republic. This is a Republican legacy. I mean, what are we going to do? Of course. But she said, do we have an obligation to the tens of thousands of Afghans who want out? I mean, I swear to God, I heard her say that. And that's going to be the question that will now come up. It's going to emerge. 
because don't forget what Trump put on the agenda was an anti-immigrant and anti-refugee. That's right. Approach. So this is this is really interesting. Um, Being in another geopolitical hotspot of Greece where, you know, uh, Russia has always had a dance with with Greece. And even though Greece is part of the EU um, and and simultaneously, uh, you know, Cyprus, obviously not part of Greece, is is a very important geopolitical place. Um, right. And, and let's and, not forget that part of Cyprus was civil war separated out, a Turkish yep. Cypriot. Yes. Yeah. Separated or just bulldozed people out of their community. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but Turkey, I mean, Turkey is important in this yeah. in this situation as well very, at very this important. moment. Right. So all of all of this is happening as Turkey is trying to expand its empire, as Russia is trying to expand its empire, you know, turf war by turf war. Yeah. Um, as China right. is trying to expand its empire by buying up ports like the Piraeus port in Greece, um, by buying up infrastructure across the globe in in distressed region, regions, in in conflict regions and using the American forces as a buffer to continue. Because one thing I think, I don't know how many people know this, but like when the U.S. military is involved in their bases and there's NATO bases, there's more economic development. I'll use Libya as an yeah, example. Right. Libya started to westernize. Um, and, you know, Gaddafi knew that he was going to be going down and he started putting power and money, uh, support, excuse, excuse me, into his son. And his yeah. son started which, to open which, up Libya. There were the two sons, and I'm forgetting which. Saif and the one that I think died. The one of whom um, had an association with the London School of Economics that they found a very embarrassing tie. I think it's Saif, but. Saif, yeah. He's yeah. he's supposedly making a comeback. Um, oh. mm-hmm. So, but he was the one who was, who started to westernize, opened up the internet. The internet was there for two years. Just happened to happen, you know, at a moment when uh, uh the Arab Spring started and young people, you know, all these things are factors, right? Yeah. So for folks who think it was in the interest of the U.S. to topple Gaddafi, I, I, I fundamentally disagree with that in so many ways. Yeah. They were interested in keeping, making a smooth transition from Gaddafi to Saif because yeah. all these Western right. companies, including oil companies, were investing in Libya. So right. I say this because now we look at... Um, so the refugee crisis. I think we all have to sit there and say, which America are we talking about? Which imperialist America are we talking about? The right wing or the neoliberal American imperialism? Because yeah. I can't look at the two the same way. They have fundamentally different approaches, both extremely yeah. flawed, in my opinion, to how they deal with foreign policy. And so you have a refugee crisis now. The, 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 the Greek government, the center-right government, has literally decided against humanitarian law to block all refugees and shut down all refugee camps in Greece abruptly, even though it's against uh, uh, the international law. So they're blocking it. So it's all going to be held in in Turkey now, putting pressure on Turkey. We have decided we, under the Biden administration, we are, our numbers are lower than ever as we're about to see Afghanis. I mean, we saw what happened. So how does this, I mean, are we putting the pressure on our enemies now? I mean, that's what I'm thinking is the entire U.S. perspective now is put pressure on the forces who are trying to flex their muscles on us. So whether it's NATO or the EU or the U.S., their goal is, yo, you, you want this so bad? Cool. You deal with it now. You deal with the refugees. You deal with the infrastructure. You deal with the troops, China. You deal with the refugees, Turkey and Russia. Is that... 
Cuckoo? I, I, I assume that's rhetorical to me because I, yeah. what can I say? I mean, I've heard the number floated 60,000. We have an obligation to 60,000. That's the estimate. Okay. And where that number comes from, I don't know that they, they say it's those who directly worked with American forces. But then, then there's the left humanitarian question. And that is, what about the journalists? What about the women? What, you know, I mean, I'll never forget in the first year or so of the American presence in oh, Afghanistan. They're expendable, Harvey. That's what they're thinking. They're expendable. You know, I'm sorry to interrupt. Neoliberalism, oh, I, what I love about neoliberalism is it's always like, oh, it's a slow roll and we have to find ourselves in the middle, unless it comes to foreign policy. They don't care about the women and the children and the and, and the reporters. You know, their neoliberal philosophy goes, uh, they, they literally just like, we're out. Cold, we're out, we're out. Let them deal with it. Yeah, well, again, I, and I don't know what happened on the ground on this, but it is striking that they weren't better prepared. They, it, it's shocking that since they made it clear they were leaving, that they weren't already working on that kind of project. But at the same time, I thought, as a, well, once they began working on that kind of project, okay, to what, to what extent would the Afghan army resist the Taliban too? I mean, I, I'm sure some IR person, some police action person can, can put it better, but frankly, the travesty goes back goes 20 years and the lack of preparation from day one on the part of the Biden administration for what they, they had to have known. They had to have known what was going to transpire. Joe Biden was in this entered Congress overlapping with Vietnam and the post Vietnam period. I mean, it's just. He's the chair of the foreign relations committee. Come on guys. <laughs> and, and, and one other thing that we haven't even discussed ISIS, as much as people thought that ISIS was pretty much disarmed at this point and not disarmed, but was was weakening. Yeah. Um, it's no secret that ISIS and, and the Taliban and Al Qaeda and, and ISIS have not necessarily gotten along. Is this some sort of dystopian, grotesque realignment to make sure that the Taliban blocks ISIS, which is more unpredictable and less, you know, top down and uncontrollable? Um, I mean, I'm, 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 again, ISIS, their funding, much of it comes from seizing oil fields. Well, <laughs> um, but is this yeah, sort of like right. a weird power play? Like if you, if, okay, if the U.S. forces can't beat the Taliban because nobody in, in, in the non-regional world has been able to win a war in Afghanistan ever, um, then why not use the Taliban to beat ISIS? These are okay, all so, here, so how about that? So in that vein, since we're out on a limb here, anyhow, Who's bankrolling the Taliban and the Taliban regime that will now will, that will now govern in Afghanistan? I mean, you, you can't run a government without without funds and the, the devastation that's been wrought in Afghanistan all these years. There are lots of folks who need to be paid, who need and there are hospitals that will have to be run. However bad the Taliban vision of the world may seem, they still have to run a government. So. How are they going to who's going to underwrite that government? Will it be will it be Iran? Will it be China to Pakistan to into into there? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, pervert, you know, again, I always had these sort of strange notions. And I thought, to what extent will the Taliban do their damnedest not to not to actually alienate the United States now? 
Okay. Uh, because I, you can hear the humanitarian org- organizations yes. saying to themselves, we've got to get money into Afghanistan or it's going to be not simply a Taliban nightmare. It's going to be a humanitarian nightmare. I mean, it's just all of these right now we're in the middle of something which we don't know the answers because you and I don't have we don't wield power and we're not sitting in on the on the you know, behind know closed doors meetings. About. I'm the head of NATO. Uh, well, I'm, I'm the sure NATO there, commander I'm sure there are some, RBK. I don't I'm know if sure. you've read the internet or the gray zones videos on me, but I yeah, was right. personally at 22 I, you know years old when with I my said three roommates in the other room. I had these visions of Amazing. various <laughs> Just, I remember our conversations, in fact, you bet. Um, Listen, yeah. that, 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 that button, when when I was 22 years old and um, Libya was being uh, oh, yeah. uh, bombed, uh, and I was the NATO commander. I was operating from my my four bedroom apartment with my three roommates in the other room, and I was just sitting in the corner. I had to go into my closet. And I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm not allowed to say this online. I I, I messed up. God, I'm so tempted at times the to share of all the secrets. Is wherever Nomi Key resides. <laughs> right now, I'm residing in a children's room. <laughs> No, let people, in the but no, if they've only re- if they've only come on at this moment onto the pod onto the YouTube, that those are children's ornaments <laughs> behind you. They are not they're not tokens of the devil or anything like that. No, they're like this. Remember those like shrunken heads that you'd find at the museums when you. Oh, yeah. Oh, I my God. Those fast. Or they sold them readily. You lived where? In Ecuador. Oh, in Ecuador, they still. I'm sorry. I didn't well, you know, the Chivaro Indians, I pronounce. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. They they were known for their head shrinking practices so tourists would they weren't real shrunken heads people were buying at least none that i was aware of but they created these you know mock yeah. shrunken heads so that tourists could buy them to take them home okay it's just it's romantic honey oh truly i went to truly. ecuador i was 15 at the time so uh Oh, that, that was around the age. Like when I, I would go to these museums, I was so fascinated by that. Oh, so. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So they're in the background. It's just, um, there's a rhinoceros, there's a deer, there's a pig, there's a giraffe, and there is an elephant. I love it. I do love it. It's gorgeous, actually. And they're, they're pastel colors. You might actually want to buy one of those too. So when you resituate at the next power center, you could have... <laughs> That could Listen, be when you're in NATO, you have to be on the road. Yeah, I mean, and I got to tell you, they've demoted me from commander because they were like, "Listen, women cannot be running NATO when the Taliban could target you." So well, I will we're tell you, that you. I will tell you, my very, I have a very dear friend who was the deputy secretary general of NATO, and oh. she she was a woman. Oh my God! Can but she was deputy. She was not lead. Uh, right, then you're true, a target. Right. When I right. was lead, of yeah, she, it goes back. The friendship that goes back fifty years. 50 we years. should have her on, and we should talk about what it really means to NATO. <laughs> <laughs> and we should entitle it "Dear Cuckoo Foe Left," who's trying to. <laughs> right. I'm sorry if you. Oh God, I can't like. Yeah. Well, you know. Again, I want to tell theory, people. If they, internet. I'm going to tell people that. It's not a bad idea, given the times in which we live, to do something which will seem very high schoolish. But if you have a free wall in your house, go get a world map and put it up. And every time oh. you think and just put it up. OK, um, that's what I told my students all the time. Just put up a world map in your dorm room or wherever else. I guarantee it'll 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 remind you that the world just isn't as simple as even I will perhaps present it to you. 
And I don't recommend the West Wing ever, but there is one episode of the West Wing uh, regarding maps, which is a oh, famous episode which... where they when that when the guy came in the map lobbyist and was like, the maps are not accurate. We oh, are yeah, 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 so yeah, small. yeah. And like right. Africa is like 17 times larger than us. Right. And we need to change the maps. And yeah. So yeah, when you get for your sure. own map, make sure. Right. It's well, the first thing that I t- and I told him this was on a limited basis, I said, And when you buy the map, because once upon a time in the United States, you couldn't get a map that didn't have the United States in the middle. And and broke up Asia. And so at least now world maps. Yeah. Put U.S. in the middle and they had the Atlantic and the Pacific. And so basically East Asia would show up. Separate from Central Asia. So just make sure if you do have a world map that you've got one that does not have the United States in the middle. Okay. Don't do yeah, that. that. That would be great. That would be a, a, yeah. a great lesson in this moment. Right. We are not the center of the world, um, despite our, our attempts. All right. Fascinating conversation. No, I mean, I'll just tell you, I look forward to the time where this pandemic isn't resurging and we can go get a drink in Astoria, Queens. I cannot wait. And I look forward to also having you in studio. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Before we be... get those drinks. Right. So you can have a long conversation. I don't know if people realize we only we only got to meet in person literally like weeks before the country essentially shut down. Yeah. yeah. It was like Michael's late, event. Michael's Michael event. Brooks's and then we, we got event. together the next day yeah. for, you know, a, a coffee and stuff like that. So. And since then, we've just had hours. And I feel and like I've known you forever. That's kind of funny. I feel the same way. Yeah. Oh, right. That's and one good thing that's coming to this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I don't know if you've already cut off the taping of this or not, but no, we're still going. Oh, we are. OK, this is the best part. I, as far as I'm concerned. but <laughs> I mean, Afghanistan, I know guys, you better you than know I know not... Central Asia. <laughs> Listen, all we got to do to brainwash Americans is just create a map where Asia's split. So they think that we are bigger than Asia. And then we just oh, yeah. shrink Africa and make it look like they're just like a little thing. And you just, that's how you break <laughs> everyone. Listen, California is the size of Africa. That's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. Te- I'm sorry. Right. Texas. Texas is the side of Africa. It's the Sahara Desert. It's like Rhode Island. That's all it is. <laughs> that's how you win them over. And then you just. Give talking points to Joe Rogan, who's like, I don't know. I mean, do we really know how big uh, 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 Morocco is? Or like, <laughs> I mean, it could be just as large as, as he's basically a fighter. Right. And speaking of Morocco, since that's where all the films about the Middle East and East Central Asia and all the films about th- this take place. Right now, Hollywood has hired innumerable script writers, has already reserved hotel rooms in Morocco because they're going to reproduce, right, guaranteed they're going to reproduce the pullout in Hollywood terms. And, and there'll be the story of some, some American unit that refuses to leave Afghanistan yep. until they can get into central Afghanistan and help some family escape. L- liberate a, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, listen, Hollywood, if you're going to do that, maybe take care of your own America. There, we have desert in the U.S. So if you're going to do propaganda, I'm not the Moroccan people are lovely, but we need jobs in, in the US. So support your unionized uh, <laughs> film crew when you're producing your propaganda. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Simple as that. Good, a good idea. A good idea. 
Harvey K, you're the best. Thank you. You're the best, actually. We could have talked about this. I mean, this is a, such a big topic, so maybe we'll do yeah. it again very soon. Or um, if, if not on air, off. Yes. Oh, I have an idea for next cycle because because um, producer Brad has mentioned about a bunch of things that we didn't get to. It's just such a big topic. But next time around, if you're down, can we talk about like the legacy of the Nazis and whether or not they really went away or didn't? And because okay, so so just, well, just something. A, I know it's a big yeah. topic, but but it comes up a lot in like comments and chats and and, and oh, well. obviously with Latin American. You're you're well, funny. As soon as you said that, my mind went to Argentina and. Yeah, right. But simultaneously, I want to ask you another question. Yeah. Which just to marinate on, it's like a teaser for the next time you come on. Is the polit is the is the foreign policy of today in terms of the multidimensionalism and how um complicated uh the alignments are similar to World War like the lead up to World War One and post World War One? Versus wow. World War II, which is obviously the, the, the lines were much clearer. Wow, that's a good question. I, I really should think about that. I really, really should. Okay. That's, you would know, uh, I don't know. I'm just, just well, that's as you're no, describing I mean, it, I was like, well, I can't figure a, out where there, we are. And who's if you who think about it on a grander scale, I mean, there is this scramble. You brought up China. I mean, yeah. you're look, you're down in the Balkan region. Let's. I mean, there's this great story coming out of uh, Montenegro about the highway that the Chinese underwrote and basically the government, the leadership is, is, is they, they literally bankrupted Montenegro because of this, the Chinese loaned money, the Chinese sent the, 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 the builders, the Chinese, I mean, it's literally bankrupting. It's bankrupted Montenegro. Yeah. Um, so let's start, you know, these, these alternate sources of monies and, and power. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I mean, said I'm, to, I'm, I mean I, I'm not, I look, I don't welcome the collect. I'll be honest, and I don't give a shit what people think. I don't welcome the collapse of the American empire. I, I think people, I think, I think there's ways it should happen and ways it definitely should not. And right now we are positioned for the worst case scenario. And you mentioned World War I, and, I'll, and, and I think that's, uh, I'll be honest. I mean, there's no good guy who's, you know, Karl Marx no, is I, I'll put it this not way. sitting a friend in of the mine back in grad, A friend of mine back in grad school said to me, if you think that imperialism is 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 the question, which in part I did, I connected peasants and their lives to Wall Street in some grand argument I made in in a graduate seminar. He said, he said you want to really be putting all your attention into American politics and not into not into worrying about politics on the ground in Latin America, and 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 that stuck with me. And I actually believe that that the first task of the left is not to, is to think in terms of how does the left secure a, a much stronger voice? You know, you know, Bernie Sanders is getting up there. <laughs> okay, yeah. but how do we secure a much stronger voice? How do we make the Democratic Party the Democratic Party? Because there, there has to be a force that can literally command. We've got to be in a position to shape whatever transformations are coming, even if it's going to be over a long haul, not an immediate haul, not my age. I probably won't see the long haul, obviously. But it's it's the case that, you know, if anyone thinks that the alternative is China or Russia or some forget it. I mean, ask the ask, ask the folks in Western China what they have to think, what they think about Beijing. OK, ask masses of people in in Russia, what they have to think about Moscow. Okay, ask journalists, I mean, ask, you know, ask, the centers, I mean, ask, ask the Chechens how, 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 what, like, I mean, you know, so 
one dimensionally. We've got to stop thinking yeah, one dimensionally. That's all. Okay. So with that being said, um, I feel like the, the, the one of the divides in terms of leftist foreign policy behaviors that are taking place right now is there's this romanticism with creating conditions that were literally a hundred years ago with Paris commune. <laughs> and even uh, that was yeah. romantic yeah. Uh, reinventing that and the conditions of today, which was so, crushed by the way, let people realize that. Exactly. So, so we are sitting with the conditions of today. And if we want to get back to the roots of, of our philosophy, it's like, how do we change the material, con- you know, material conditions and the reality of today is you do have world powers and emerging attempt, you know, second rate world powers. And if you want to, I think the way you're posing is, do we want to destroy American empire entirely and what is left as a result? Or do we want to uh, use an electoral system to shift the way that American empire exists but American well, Empire, that's a, that's a good way. That's a, at least a starting point. It's either that's gone a, and something else comes. I mean, it's not like we can force Russia to suddenly become a communist. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like, they yes, tried that. If you, wanted, they to, tried if that you wanted to dismantle the American empire, then you have to make sure that China and Pakistan, I mean, all, all these world powers are also Marxist and they're not. And, and I don't, I mean, this is what I'm grappling with is how do we make our conditions the we're taking care of our people, not at the expense, you know, not, not creating whatever stability that we, our umpire believes in at the expense of our own people. And so that's, that's my philosophy is, is we don't, we don't. Yes. There's so many places that that can go towards. Um, I mean, look, I, I mean, my mind right now is, how do we get the fucking infrastructure plan passed? Right. So at least, so at least we can move from there to something. And right now, Biden's predictably Biden's pop- popularity is, is at least in a short term decline. The Republicans will do what they can. Um, if California gets a Republican governor, Jesus, I mean, that, right? Republican I'm, radio host? Will, yeah. will the Eric Adams election be the foretelling of the California governor election? You know, it's that, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, they do both have extremely low turnout, and that's something we have to keep yeah, in mind. Is like low, when turnouts that low, Republicans right. yeah. on it. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, but I. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm getting something to think about. Time. Listen, if we don't pass the infrastructure bill, I hear China's got a really great bill, bid on a bid on us. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> All right. Oh, you gotta go. That. Okay. No, awesome. I mean, I, I can't even begin to respond to that one. <laughs> I'm remembering oh. the question of because, yeah, the Chinese would probably love to take our harbors. Hell, most of the stuff pouring into them, at least on the West Coast, comes from China. So don't worry. Steve Bannon has a plan for that. Steve Bannon has a plan for that. And then he's just going to make sure all the little indentured servants, a.k.a. the millennials and the Gen Zers, um, are the ones uh, doing the, 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 the grunt work. The grunt work. Grunt. Okay. grunt and if people, grunt, if grunt. people, I'm going to leave with one thought. I probably grunt while they grunt. What would the story have been if Bernie had been elected? Boom. Oh, jeez. Okay. That's the fantasies for the for the day. It, it, I, 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 it's killing me to have to cut this off, but Bye. But you need me to cut this off. I have to. Thank you. Our listener, listeners got extra content. So that's all that matters. Harvey K, you're the best. We could talk for three they hours. Got extra content or discontent, whatever. 
<laughs> whatever it is. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. We should start a segment called What Would Have Happened If Bernie Won? Well, we can start a whole what if that? series of segments. You bet. It's actually just a show. <laughs> That's right. Hey, patrons, if you want to see the show, please join us on patreon.com slash the key show. Type it in and we will create an actual show called what would have happened if Bernie won? What if Bernie won on healthcare, on infrastructure, on on foreign policy, foreign policy, obviously. The Mideast. Pre-college. I mean, blah, 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 blah. Oh, my God. We could do this for 10 years. Okay. This is how we're going to become millionaires. Actually, I have some ideas tax. about that. If, we could get taxed the hell out of <laughs> I've passed up every opportunity to become a millionaire, and and I don't even know if I should think about it now. So, wow! I well, have look. I left. Not I, passed I up didn't every opportunity to become a millionaire. <laughs> 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 Listen, the NATO people understand the minimum wage at NATO is not. It's subpar. They have a great brunch. You might get bombed in the hotel <laughs> that you're staying at because it's a Target. But listen, that that buffet, the cheese. Oh my god, the cheese is amazing. But okay, I just want people to know. We're doing. We're speaking right now on Wednesday. Wednesday is sushi night in my household. Oh, you make sushi? Well, the the local store actually has it. They they have these two people who make sushi, and it's it. The size of the fish is big. The rice is great. Uh, I mean, it's great. And I found a place where I could actually get green tea ice cream. So, and mochi. It's actually, it's a mocha green tea ice cream. Ooh. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's. it's what about your Japanese whiskey? I know you've been into that lately. I, it, there's a bottle downstairs, but, but my wife doesn't drink whiskey. So we drink champagne. Champagne socialist. Well, uh, it's actually, uh, it's Spanish. Let me make it clear. It's, it's cava. Spanish. So it's, it's cava. It's, it's not it's right. working class champagne. It's working class. Exact. Thank you. I'm glad so you much better, by the way. Cava, cava is so champagne. much better. It is yeah. cava. Freshenay, in fact. So uh, you can get cava for like three euros in Europe, as long as you're not in Greece. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Okay. Greeks are like, that's it. Just I, I got to go eat Bye. some lunch. Have a nice- so okay, it's still enjoy, a while till you eat dinner, but it's my lunchtime. I know. I, it's it just so everybody knows it's 8.23 p.m. here. I have dinner in an hour and a half. <laughs> I wish I were there. Thank you to Professor Harvey Kay for joining us for this very lively conversation. And thank you to everybody who watches our show and listens to our show on all the different places, including patreon.com slash the Nomi Show, where you're patrons. And if you are one of our lovely patrons, you might even be able to get swag like the Nomi Key show mug that Harvey K is holding right now. I don't know what he has in that mug, but mugs can cover up a lot. <laughs> so can bags like the Nomi Key show bag. It covers up a lot. <laughs> the Nomi Key show sticker. So join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key show. But seriously, um, thank you to everybody for tuning in. We will see you on Friday, uh, Friday for from Friday. And, uh, and for patrons, I think you're getting a little something extra because we don't shut up over here. <laughs> All right. Stay in solidarity. Take care. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And this melted pot we live in Time to build a new system, unionize labor rights Highlight the issue, talking heads left is best The saga continues, continues. The No Miki Show, show.